Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 111. This episode is with Nicole Serdica, physio and strength conditioning coach. Now, since we recorded the episode, Nicole has actually accepted a role as Director of Rehabilitation at OL Rain. So massive congratulations to Nicole. Um, it's amazing to see so many practitioners that have been on the podcast, but also members of our community and just generally people in the industry have landed new roles recently. It's amazing to see. But huge congratulations to Nicole. Um, I know as this podcast goes out, she's done her first couple of days, which I've caught up with her, which she said has gone well. So um, yeah, huge congratulations to her. And I'm sure um, OL Rain are going to see what a top practitioner she is, um, which you are about to hear on this podcast. So Nicole came on to talk about her coaching philosophy. She also spoke about her business and the way that she works with athletes. She talked about how important it is for strength conditioning coaches to understand the game and in what depth we need to understand the game as well and how game models or style of play or style of player um, affects how she prepares players physically for the game as well. And then we also discussed her framework for ACL rehab. And then we also spoke about building a following. So there's a lot of people now putting information out on social media. And um, I'm sure there's many out there that are posting and posting regularly and possibly not getting the traction that they think they deserve. Um, So Nicole gave a little bit of feedback on how she built her following um, and the sort of steps she took and the reasons why she started putting information out on social media as well. So that was awesome to speak to Nicole about that. I think it's quite an interesting topic and one that coaches will want to listen to. But there's loads of top information in this. So I hope you enjoyed the episode with Nicole. As always, please make sure you're subscribed on iTunes, Spotify and also on YouTube And please make sure that you share this episode as well. I really do appreciate everyone sharing the shows and getting the word out to as many coaches out there as possible. So here is episode 111 with Nicole Serdica. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 111. I'm delighted today to be joined by Nicole Serdica. Nicole is a physio an S&C coach, and I know we've got loads of different things to discuss today, but first of all, Nicole, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. Now, this is our take two. We're not going to lie. This is our second <laughs> attempt at it, so I'm hoping we've got a better signal and we're going to smash it today. Definitely. It'll be even smoother and better than our first take. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, Nicole, just run us through, um, just take us through your background. I've just mentioned your role with physio and s coach, but just take us through your background and then what you do currently. Yeah, so I grew up playing soccer and um, played Division One college soccer at St. John's in New York. Uh, right before I went there, though, I fractured my tibia and fibula, which required surgery and months of physical therapy. And that's what got me interested in becoming a physio. And then um, after college, I went to, after I did my undergraduate studies at St. John's, I went to Emory University in Atlanta to get my doctoral degree in physical therapy. That's where I met my husband, Mark, who's also a physical therapist. And we moved to Los Angeles um, after graduation. We did a brief stint back in my hometown in New Jersey and then came back to Los Angeles a little over three years ago now. and so, yeah, I had been working in a couple different, you know, standard outpatient orthopedic and sports medicine clinics. Um, I was lucky enough to work in a sports performance center, my first job out of school and had an amazing experience there. I uh, got to work with some great athletes along the way. And then two and a half years ago, I uh, branched out on my own and started my own cash-based practice where I work predominantly with soccer players in that return to performance phase um, after an injury. And so because I'm in the cash-based model, um, a lot of times our insurance companies will cap the amount of visits a patient can have after an injury. 
or they'll say, okay, the athlete is jogging now. So they're back to pre-injury levels, which of course we know they're not. Um, but so I try to help once the insurance has run out, then I can help fill in the gaps. But I do also have patients who come to me right after surgery as well. Mostly ACL reconstructions is what I see. Uh, but I really love implementing like that on-field rehab portion of the program to get them ready for the demands of the sport. And uh, yeah, so that's what I do. Brilliant. And we'll dive into that because we're going to go into um, your approach to ACL, but also the field-based uh, rehab as, as well in a second. Um, but to start with, and I don't, I never like using the word philosophy because I always think it's really hard to define what you do in such a small sentence or um, a small yeah space of time. But in terms of your approach that you take with players, how would you define what you do? Yeah, so I think, yeah, if I was to say what my quote-unquote coaching philosophy or my philosophy towards rehab is, um, it's really just to be flexible and adaptable to the individual. And so, you know, we've all heard similar expressions about how you can have the best plan, but if you can't apply it to that individual or you can't implement it appropriately for whatever reason, um, then it's not going to be effective. And so I'm all about educating and empowering the athletes that I work with. And so as we go through the process, I want them to understand the why behind what we're doing. And it's not just me dictating to them, okay, you have to do this, you have to do that. It's uh, here's what we need you to be able to do. Here's a way that we can do it. And it's kind of like a shared decision-making process. Um, I hope to keep it very athlete-centric in that regard. But it really, if we think about it, athletes, whether we're seeing high schoolers, college athletes, or professional athletes, they're realistically not always going to be around you, right? A high schooler will one day go off to college. Um, a college athlete will one day no longer be a college athlete. And professional athletes get traded to different teams all the time and will also one day retire. And so what I don't want to do ever is um, make the athlete feel dependent on me or something that I do. I want to promote this sense of empowerment that they understand how their body works. They understand what their body needs to be able to do. And they feel empowered to do that on their own. Maybe they need a little bit of guidance, uh, but that's what I think my primary role is. Yeah, that's great. And it, it crosses over really nicely with um, two previous episodes stand out for me where we spoke to Gary Ward. Um, he talked about educating players on how to treat themselves um, in terms of like corrective, whether you call it corrective exercise or just general sort of health, strength training. Um, but also Tony Tompos, a physio that was, he was at Aberdeen at the time. Um, and he spoke about the ACL rehab process being very player, player centered um, and the player having decisions along the way. And I think that's really important, isn't it? Especially through injury, like the, guy, the guys and girls that you're seeing, um, it's important to keep them involved, isn't it? And like you say, the, the empowerment's massive. Yeah, absolutely is. Because it's a long process and I don't think anyone really enjoys being dictated to for nine to 12 months. Yeah. Um, and so to make it a shared process and, you know, we're there mostly as educators, coaches, um, and to kind of guide them through. Uh, so yeah, I think that that's a massive part of it and helps with the, with the emotional toll and the psychological toll as well. So giving them some autonomy throughout the process is huge um, for the psychological response after an injury. Yeah, definitely. And then also buy-in as well, isn't it? Like if they're having some decisions along the way, you like to think a lot of players are bought into a process of getting them back onto the pitch, but the re rehab's hard, isn't it? Like both yeah. physically and mentally, it's tough. And you, you know you've had injuries. So um, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's an actually um, an interesting area, isn't it? Because the, the people you're working with in that end stage psychologically, that's a really important time as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is a normal emotional response. I mean, nobody should just have kind of a flat effect and, and not be affected by the injury emotionally or psychologically to some regard. So if somebody was just happy-go-lucky all the time and it didn't bother them, I would be a little bit worried about that person as well. Mm. Um, yeah, as we, as we inch closer to 
the time in which they'll be more reintegrated with the team and training regularly again and then competing in matches again. Um, it's normal to have a little bit of fear surrounding that as long as it's not fear that kind of holds them back in any way from a performance perspective or makes them feel like they can't go out onto the pitch. But it's normal to have a little bit of fear and anxiety surrounding that. And I think that by giving them some autonomy and educating and empower, empowering them along the way, it just kind of helps them with their, their self-talk, right? Like, oh, uh, what if I get re-injured? It's like, actually, I know all the work I've put in. I know that my quads are strong. I know that my hamstrings and glutes and everything else are as strong as they need to be. I know I've put in, you know, the work that needed to be put in and I know that I'm ready for this. So that's kind of how the self-talk should go towards the end. Yeah, definitely. And that must be a big role, what you play with the athlete in terms of like psychologically. Because um, you mentioned before about the insurance taking them up to a certain point and then them being seen as maybe being fit to go and join back into performance. But we know working with players that you could, there's a difference between so-called being fit and being ready to play, isn't there? Absolutely. And actually, this has been somewhat of a tough conversation at times with some clients I've worked with in that there are some who have been cleared by either their previous physio or their surgeon, you know, have, they've been cleared to return to sport. And that, then I see them and I think that we still have another couple of months of work to do. Mm. Um, and that's a, a fairly common occurrence. And so that's a tough conversation because now I have to tell someone who's already been cleared to play in a game that we still have a couple more months of work before that can happen. Um, and and my my goal is never to keep an athlete on the sideline. Like I think that sometimes physio can get a bad rap. Um, sometimes it's deserved, but often it's not uh, for being too conservative and wanting to keep athletes off the field. And um, that's definitely not the case. You know, we want athletes to be playing and healthy. We just have to make sure that it's appropriate for them to do so. And so that can sometimes be tough telling an athlete. I know they said you were cleared, and I think that a good way to go about that is testing them right so showing them some objective data and saying okay you need to be able to hit x amount of meters at a high speed of a high speed running um, distance and right now you know you've been jogging for 10 minutes at a time do you mm -hmm. think that you're ready for the match demands yeah. or hey before your injury you were hitting this max speed right now you're only hitting this so you're not performing well enough yet um, don't you think we should spend some time working on getting you back to your peak velocity again? So that's where I like pulling in some of the objective data. Yeah, I, I think that we do athletes a disservice by kind of giving them this idea that there's this one day that they're just going to return to sport and be fine and good to go. And it should be more of a smooth, gradual transition um, and a transition through which they feel that yeah, this is the logical next step. I feel prepared for this based on everything I've done before. And it's not this big jump to the next thing. Mm. And that that's going to involve, you just talked about before, some tough conversations, isn't it? Because it'll be really easy for you in your role to go, oh yeah, they're, they're fit, they're ready, and sort of push them back into performance. But you've got to have that confidence and belief in yourself and your own ability to step in at that point, haven't you? And whether it's the conversation with the player or it might be a conversation with the coach or possibly like surgeon or doctor or anyone like that. So coaches that are in or, or practitioners that are in that position, would you have any advice in terms of that confidence behind that conversation? Yeah, I think it just comes down to like having some good valid information as to what's informing your, your thought process and understanding that other people will have their own um, objective information and background and experiences and beliefs that formulate their perspective on the situation. And mm -hmm. so I'm not a surgeon, right? So if a surgeon says something like, oh, I don't want this person to squat past 90 degrees or whatever they might say to me, I might be like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why wouldn't they be able to? Well, I haven't been inside that person's knee or whatever they've had surgery on. And so the surgeon has. So I need to try to understand their perspective because obviously something is informing that decision. Mm -hmm. So I need to try to understand that. I just, it's simple perspective taking, right? So, okay, what's the coach's perspective? Well, 
they the team has playoffs coming up and this athlete even at 70 percent of their best is better than some of the other players 100 percent and so that's the coach's perspective like oh well I don't care that they're at 70 percent because that's still better than some of the other players Mm. um so understanding that perspective and then of course the most important is understanding the athlete's perspective um and so I think just being able to shift your mindset and take each stakeholder's perspective, or at least try to understand it. And then of course, having something that truly informs your perspective and being able to communicate that effectively. Yeah. And just for you on that, was that, has that always been easy for you to have that conversation or do you think that's come from experience and, and just learning, learning how to deal with that? I think a little of each. I think um, definitely it comes from experience and the more you practice it, the better you get at it. And the more confident you are in your abilities to, um, to reliably measure something and, and apply that to the person in front of you. I think the more confidence you'll have with it. I think also I come from a big family. I have four younger sisters and none of us ever agreed on much. (laughs) I think just, navigating dinner table talk has helped me with that a little bit I think that's a really good point though because the more I speak to coaches when we talk about like soft skill development and being able to have these conversations it's funny when you delve into like people's past whether it's families or like jobs like you speak to people that have worked behind bars or they've managed like cafes and stuff like that and you're like well at the time you probably didn't realize that your skills that you're developing around the dinner table with your sisters are actually going to be useful when you're speaking to a, a head coach at a team or a player or something. And that's, it is fascinating that where, where the, those skills are actually developed sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm, I tend to be kind of the, um, the peacekeeper among our sisters. <laughs> and so that's, yeah, that's definitely helps with, uh, with these kinds of conversations with just trying to be the person that brings everyone together on the same page and, really just looking at it from like the perspective of what's best for the athlete. Cause that's what we all want at the end of the day. We all have to recognize we're all on the same page. We all have the same goal and that's to get the athlete healthy enough and at um, good enough performance levels that they can get on the field without um, too much of a risk of re-injury. Yeah, definitely. And we'll move it on now. Cause um, I know there's some great stuff around ACL that you information you put out and the, the whole model you work to. So we'll delve into that now. Um, just for anyone that doesn't follow you on social media, you put some great stuff out around ACL um, and, and the factors that, that go, that contribute sometimes to ACL injuries, but also rehab post post injury as well. So do you want to break down your framework um, for ACL injuries? Yeah, definitely. So whenever I work with any athlete, um, you always have to look at the end first. So what are the end goals? And that's knowing what the demand, what the gain demands are going to be on that athlete. And that's going to vary. I mean, there are some normative values out there that you can use as a guideline if needed. Um, if you don't have pre-injury data for that given athlete, but, um, knowing simple things like what system of play a team uses, what position that athlete plays, Now, for someone on a youth team, like if you're working with a 15-year-old girl who plays for the local club team or the local high school team, she may not know and the coach may not know what kind of their their system of play is or what their main tactics tend to be, but they can tell you what formation they tend to play or they can tell you uh, what position they play. So something as simple as, okay, I play outside back and my team plays a 4-3-3. And that's important because an outside back in a 4-3-3 is going to have different demands than an outside back in a 4-4-2. And so it's important to understand that. So truly understanding the demands that will be placed on them once they're back to their normal, you know, back to with their team doing their normal activities without restrictions on them. That needs to be the first step. And I think that we tend to miss that sometimes. Like we just try to go through in a, in a forward direction, but we really need to have the end in mind and work backwards. So then after we determine the end goal, we then look at what the athlete's current capacity and current capabilities are. And so let's say right after an ACL reconstruction, uh, they're probably limited with weight bearing. Um, they probably don't have full extension of their knee and they probably have swelling. So they're way on the opposite end of that spectrum. 
And so we need to come up with a plan that's going to take almost a year for youth athletes. I would say, I, I tell youth athletes a year, um, at least barring anything that comes up, infection, secondary injury or anything like that. Um, and be able to fill in that gap. So what are the, what's the end goal? Where are they currently at? And how do we bridge the gap between? And coming up with a, a clear plan that we can um, express to the athlete. And I always say that these long-term goals are really provider-centric. They provide us with a great framework of how to design and implement our program. Mm -hmm. But short-term goals are much more athlete-centric. Right. It means nothing to someone who's just come off the operating table and can't straighten their knee all the way to say, right, you're going to be hitting um, X amount of meters per week in 10 months time. <laughs> Great. That means nothing right now. You know, so instead, say by the end of this week, we're going to get the swelling down. We're going to have you, um, you know, having a volitional quadriceps contraction. We're going to have you uh, with a straight knee by two weeks. And so those are our realistic and short-term goals that the athlete can look at and say, right, I have to be able to do this in the next week. Um, and then they get to celebrate each little milestone along the way, instead of waiting for this really long drawn out process to take shape. So that's kind of my, my big framework, my overall framework. And then obviously in the first stage, we're looking to, like I said, decrease inflammation, um, get some normal uh, gait mechanics back and get a straight, fully extended knee. So, and get the quad firing again, or, or I kind of hate that term, but get the quad um, volitionally again. And so those are kind of the big goals right away. Then once that happens, then we can start strengthening. And the first thing we need to do is get some muscle mass back in those quads because the quad atrophies, we all know this, we all seen it. It atrophies so quickly after an ACL injury. And so the first thing we need to do is work on hypertrophy of the quad. Of course, we also need to be doing other things, um, depending on what graft type they've had, depending on their, what their previous injuries have been, or kind of what their individual risk factors are for, for different injuries moving forward. We can address all of those in this holistic strength gym-based program. So this is where athletes can sometimes get a little bit um, bored or uh, kind of like, oh my gosh, this is taking forever. And they feel like they're plateauing a little bit or stuck in a rut is when we've been working on strength now for you know three months and they're still not running yet. And mm -hmm. that's okay because they still need a lot of hypertrophy and strength work. And then, um, then we can shift more into, once we really develop hypertrophy and start working on strength, then we can start shifting that into more um, rate of force development um, and, and power type movements or power type exercises. And personally, I like to work on eccentric um, uh, deceleration type movements before I'm going to work on acceleration. So it's kind of that phrase, you know, test the brakes or work, make sure the brakes work before you accelerate. Um, so that's what I would work on first. And then, but like bearing in mind that that eccentric rate of force development might be the last thing that comes back fully and after an ACL reconstruction. But I still like to introduce that deceleration and eccentric comp component earlier on, just knowing it's gonna take a while to fully come back. Uh, always including plyometrics around this phase as we start to get them ready for running. Uh, I like to do some hopping stuff before running because we know that they're gonna be able to run if they're able to do some plyometric type activities. Um, and then yeah, just gradually progressing a running program. And that's when I start to introduce an on-field rehab program. Um, yeah. So I can go into the on-field rehab program if you yeah, want. Yeah, we'll, or... we'll do that in a second because I know there's some great stuff with that, but I was just going to ask just a little bit around, um, well, well, yeah, we'll go into the, the on-field stuff in a second. I'm getting carried away because it's so good. Um, <laughs> but the, Let's dive into the, the eccentric stuff that you spoke about. So you talked about um, getting it in quite early in the program. So can you give a bit more of an idea on what that actually looks like in terms of exercises and also um, how that might sort of progress into like more specific sort of deceleration? Yeah, definitely. So the way I introduce it is by simply manipulating tempo of exercises that are known to the athlete. So I'll start, unless they've had let's assume that they've had a, um, a patella tendon autograft, right? So 
if that's the case, then I'll start deadlifts, especially like an RDL fairly early on, as soon as they're fully weight bearing, essentially, mm. um, because it's, there's no reason not to, it's good for, um, hamstring strength. And so that's what I, I like to heavy load as soon as I can in, in whatever form I can. And that's a good way to get that in pretty early. So if they're comfortable with that lift and we've been doing it for a few weeks in kind of this more hypertrophy foundational strength phase, then as we move forward, the first thing I'll do is I'll, I'll just manipulate tempo and have them do uh, maybe a slow four or five second lower eccentric component, maybe a pause at the bottom, maybe not, and then back up in one or two seconds. Um, you can, of course, manipulate the um, the volume and the intensity. So the how much load you're putting on the bar or the dumbbell, whatever you're having them use. Um, so yeah, you can. I, I like to take an exercise that's known to them that we've been working on in those first kind of foundational strength phases, and then just manipulating how I prescribe it to them, so that it's not this whole new skill that they have to learn. Because oftentimes their training age can be pretty low if it's their first injury. Maybe like a lot of teenage girls, they've never lifted weights before until they've gotten injured. Right. And mm -hmm. which is a, a whole other problem in and of itself. <laughs> um, but so I don't want to have to take the, the time to teach them a brand new skill when that's going to take time away from developing the, the positive adaptations we're looking for. So yeah, I'll, I'll start it by manip manipulating tempo and then, um, and then I'll start manipulating how I prescribe it. And that instead of, you know, doing moderate intensity for four sets of 12, let's say, you know, maybe then we're doing five by five. And then maybe we go into six to eight sets of three reps and they're doing it more for power. So now we're looking really for that quick concentric component, slow eccentric component. Um, and then we can start to delve into adding more of a plyometric component from that or adding um, some hops from that. Sometimes I like to do things like um, post-activation potentiation. So we'll do a heavy RDL or heavy trap bar deadlift into a vertical jump or a broad jump. Um, so that's how I tend to progress it. Yeah, brilliant. Because I was going to ask about the jumps as well. Um, so I think that, that covers that nicely. But do you want to take us then into the, the fun stuff now? Because it's the end, end stage or stage, <laughs> stage five. Um, so in terms of reintroducing or getting them ready now back for that game, and this is probably the really important one, isn't it, where um, your understanding of the game, and obviously this is from playing, but I know also from, from coaching as well, becomes important, doesn't it? Because if we don't understand fully what the, um, the demands are going to be on that player in terms of systems and everything, it's a little bit harder to plan this phase, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I, I do think that's something that's been helpful to me is my playing career. And I, I coached youth soccer for years. And um, even when I was a player, I was one of those types of players that everyone always said, like, oh, you'll be a better coach than player one day, which like, they thought was a compliment. But that's like, now looking back, that's not really a compliment when you're still playing. Um, so um, yeah, I, I think it has helped me understand the demands of the game a little bit better. And that just helps you with programming the physical demands that you're gonna be training. So you can't really separate the tactical and technical demands from the physical demands. Um, as you know, especially in like a, a team sport athlete, they're, they're gonna go hand in hand. You can't, it's just really difficult to separate them out. And so being able to understand that helps me to prescribe a training program and to design uh, sessions that are more specific to the individual athlete I'm working with and uh, also helps get athlete buy-in, right? Because if I say, um, you know, brand new athlete who has just met me and I'm saying to them, okay, you play, um, you play defensive center mid. Okay, so we need to work on things like as soon as you win the ball, you know, maintaining possession, but trying to find a quick, pass forward, um, a penetrating pass, or, okay, your biggest strengths on the field are being kind of that strong um, presence in the air, a strong defensive presence. So we're going to work on your vertical jump a lot. We're going to work on a lot of strength and um, tackling and taking those first steps. So your, you know, first step acceleration, 
um, and being able to put it in a, in a contextual way that relates to their specific game, I think really helps get buy-in and just helps the program be a little bit more specific to them. I hope you're enjoying part one of the episode with Nicole. Like I said, there's loads of great information in this one. Um, I just wanted to give a quick update on our community. So depending on when you're listening to this, we have just held a webinar with, in association with Physique Management with Dr. Laura Bowen, which was titled Prevention is Cheaper Than the Cure. Now, this webinar went absolutely massive. We had loads of people signed up. It actually maxed out on the amount of people that signed up to the webinar. We've had an incredible amount of feedback after it as well. So huge thank you to Laura for giving up her time and um, all the things that she discussed in the webinar. It was absolutely top class. It is now available to watch on our online community. So if you're not a member of the community, go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab at the top. If you register there, make sure you go through the full um, sign-up process. Then it will give you one month free on the community. After that free month, it is only £4.99 per month going forward as well. And you'll get access to all the webinars that are currently on there, including all future webinars. And we will be confirming some future webinars coming up in association with Physique soon as well. So go and check that out. If you're already a member, just make sure you log in. And then the um, webinar is in the video library and you can go and watch that back on demand. If you were there for the live webinar, if not, please go and check it out because like I say, the feedback has been incredible on this one. I also just wanted to take this opportunity to just give a massive shout out to all the practitioners that are involved in the Prostate United. So if if no one has seen this, which I'm sure many people have, there's an unbelievable amount of, of coaches and practitioners that are completing runs, bike rides to raise money for prostate cancer. So if you're not following Prostate United, please go onto Twitter um, and the the uh, just follow the page. It's at Prostate United and there's a link on that page to donate as well. And as I'm looking now, the amount of money these guys are uh, raising is unbelievable. So it's all for prostate cancer. There's currently over £21,000 raised. So if you can give anything and donate anything towards that, please do, because there's some unbelievable work being done so by a number of practitioners, some that have been on the podcast. Ross Burberry is a massive part of this, so huge congratulations to Ross. And anyone that's currently... Um, taking part in any of the runs or the bike rides or anything that you're doing, keep it going. It's unbelievable what you're doing. Um, and if you're not and you're unaware of it, please go and check it out, follow the page and donate whatever you can. But I will leave you to part two of the podcast with Nicole Serdica. Yeah, brilliant. And this is where the creativity comes into the program as well, isn't it? Because you, I know you've got systems right the way through um, and things that you're wanting to hit as you go through the program and there's going to be degrees of flexibility like you said before about training age and um, possibly players knowing certain exercises and not others Um, well this end bit is where you can get creative isn't it because as long as you're sticking and trying to hit certain attributes or certain um, like movements or whatever it is then it's basically just getting creative isn't it and designing different things yeah, definitely. And and like, I find that when you frame an exercise, like say you want to work on acceleration, putting it in the context of you're a defender and an attacker just got past you down the flank and now you have to turn and chase after them and make sure they don't get a cross off. Well, that's going to help them kind of visualize them accelerating on the field or like it puts it into a perspective that they understand. And oftentimes I find that that's because that's familiar to them. There is much less coaching or teaching of a movement or a skill required. Yeah. There's still going to be some maybe movement inefficiencies that we can address and coach up, but it's a lot easier to say like, okay, turn and chase that ball or turn and chase the attacker that just got past you as opposed to like, right. You're going to go up, you're going to cut and plant on the right foot and push off, but make sure that you're pushing off and getting your ground, your foot off the ground quickly at like, I think that just gets too overcomplicated. And yeah. when we frame it in a way that's familiar to them, we often get the result we're looking for a lot more easily. Um, and it doesn't need all that overcomplicated, uh, all, the, all those cues. Um, 
So yeah, I think that that helps a lot. And yeah, it helps you get a little bit more creative, which is fun. Um, but yeah, I do have kind of like an overall framework for the on-field rehab process. Um, and I've taken that from Matthew Buckthorpe, who's, who, he has two papers in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy, I believe from last year or maybe 2018. And he basically lays out a five phase program starting with simple linear movements, pre-planned, not really sport specific at this point, focused on movement quality. And then next phase would be taking that up a notch. So starting to expose them to high speed running volume, um, starting to increase the intensity of those linear movements, um, like, you know, like I said, running and sprinting, um, high skipping, making sure they're really getting more explosive in those, but then also introducing multi-directional movements. And again, still very pre-planned um, and kind of easier, not quite as sport specific, but we're preparing them for the more sport specific movements. Then in the third phase, we can start doing multi-directional movements, changes of direction at speed, and we can start to add a reactive component and then in fourth phase, um, we're build, starting to build up their chronic training load, um, making it more sport specific, more position specific, specific to what that player does on the field and what they bring to their team within the position, the formation and the overall team system of play. Um, and we add things like 1v1 scenarios, um, maybe start adding in some controlled contact, whereas like I'm doing the contact, not one of their teammates. And then, um, and then, yeah, in the fifth phase, it really is just, it's looking like a normal training session. So that's reintegrating them back in with their team, maybe just monitoring a couple of things or restricting a couple of things, but um, yeah, really starting to just get them ready to train with no restrictions again. And those last few phases where you're talking about getting creative with the drills and, and taking into account the type of player and the game model and everything, from your point of view, that gives you a chance of seeing how well they're moving and how well they're going to move on the pitch as well, doesn't it? Because we've probably all worked with players that have gone through a full rehab program. We think, right, they're ready to go. And then they start moving on the pitch and you're like, ah, it's, it's not quite yeah. there yet. And then uh, Richard Evans spoke about it, who's the physio for Belgium on a pre previous podcast where he had to step in with Ben Watson because he just wasn't happy. The player was wanting to get back playing. The manager wanted to put him back in. And he just saw a few things where he's just like, yeah, I'm not happy with that. Um, so it gives you that chance as well, doesn't it? Using drills like that to see the true picture of what's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's a big difference between the closed environment of the gym or just, you know, a one-on-one -on -one rehab session um, and then the open environment of a pitch and, and a full game. And so if we have somebody do a vertical drop jump or even like um, an H drill or any kind of change of direction, agility type task, if they're doing it on turf or in the gym or even just in a one-on-one -on -one session with no pressure, no time demand, no decision-making pressure, um, no ball, no opponents, no teammates. I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, it can look very different. It's a very different task mm. than when we put them on the field and we have all these things. Okay, it's a wet surface because it's raining. Um, it's nighttime, so the stadium lights are on and there's a lot of crowd noise and um, there's a opponent closing in on you and you have two options in your teammates, but now one of those options is getting closed down. And so you have to make a decision quickly. And also you're losing by one and you're in the middle third of the field and you need to get forward. So like all of these things um, change the way that somebody is going to react or perform a movement task. And so the more specific we can get our on-field rehab program or the more we can add in some of these contextual factors. And granted, we're not gonna be able to add all of them in with an on-field rehab program, right? It helps address some of the issue, but you know, until they're out there, it's hard to know exactly how they're gonna respond. We just have to do our best with what we have. But um, yeah, I think it's such a very different demand from 
gym-based to being on the field. And so this program, this on-field rehab um, program helps to provide more of a smooth transition for them. Definitely. And, and you said before, like you start using language that they're going to be hearing like in the, in the changing room or out on the pitch as well. So suddenly for the player, it's like, I'm back. I'm, I'm so close mm-hmm. to being back, isn't it? Yeah. Like when I, so for example, if I'm working with someone on, like right now I have a, a female soccer player who we're in stage three of this on-field rehab program. And so we've been, she plays defensive center mid and center back. And so we've been working a lot on like the physical demands that we've been addressing our acceleration, um, change of direction and adding some reactive components to that. So what I've been doing with her is, so a drill we've done is she wins the ball off me. We're not doing contact yet. So it's more of a passive, I lay the ball off and she was, she's won it off me. Um, and then I become her teammate. So she has to quickly find where I'm going to be open. Um, or I'll have three different targets behind me. She wins it off me and I close one of those down. So she can play it off to only one of the two of the three options. Mm-hmm. And so um, that helps to provide some of that context of, okay, now I ha- I've just won the ball, but now I have pressure on me. And they're closing down one of my options and I have to make a quick decision. I'll put a time limit on it. I'll count one, two, three. And she has three seconds to get rid of the ball. Mm. Um, Or another thing I'll do is if I was working with an attacking type player and um, for her, it was change of direction, but on the offensive end. So, So a teammate has played her, the ball to her feet with back to goal and she has to quickly turn. So that's her change of direction and then decide what to do. And so, if I said turn, then that she would have to turn. So that's the reactive component. And that's something that a teammate would be saying on the field, right? Mm-hmm. Turn or man on, right? Mm-hmm. So, or, you know, like play it back, play it wide. So I give those types of cues, both verbal and visual cues that they would have on the field that would dictate what their next step is and how to, how to make their next decision. Yeah, because we don't want them getting to the end of a rehab pro, uh, program and being physically ready but then all the sort of psychological and reactive components are gone aren't they and they and it takes all that time for the player to get those back and be reacting sharply and all the rest of it so that that um sort of cohesive approach to to rehab really establishes that that happens doesn't it yeah because it makes no difference like how quickly you can accelerate in your first two steps if you never address the tactical and technical demands of how to create that space for yourself to exploit. And so if you never address the issue of them making a decision under pressure um, and having to react to that, like they're never going to get the opportunity to do those things in the game. They're just going to get stripped off the stripped uh, the ball off them as soon as they get a touch. And so you have to, you have to address those things. Otherwise you're not doing them any good. It, it makes no difference. Um, what their physical capabilities are if they can't apply that to their game, right? And that, you know, that's kind of the whole basis of performance, SNC, sports science anyways, that, you know, we're not training, I'm not training track athletes, I'm not training power lifters. You know, if this is a soccer player I'm working with, it has to translate onto the pitch and we do them a disservice if we are only focused on the physical capacities. Yeah, we're not pigeonholing, are we? Like a rehab program that someone else is going to do. It needs to get specific at some point, doesn't it? Um, yeah. That's awesome. I think that's a great breakdown of of the sort of um, process and, and systems you have in place. Just to shift gears a little bit, Nicole, I wanted to move on to, because I mentioned before about the information that you put out and you're putting loads of stuff, loads of great quality information out there. And there's a lot of coaches that are trying to build this presence on social media, but also just in general, just to, to get information out there. And I was going to ask you in terms of building a following, because you, you've got a good following on social media. Um, obviously the content's great, but how's that been for you? How have you gone about building this following? Yeah, I, I can only really say what I've done. I, I can't promise it'll work for other people, but <laughs> I really started my my Instagram and my social media stuff um, because I was when I was in physical therapy school I was working as a youth soccer coach as well at a really really good academy team like I showed up for the first practice and like girls were already there 30 minutes early like playing keepy ups with each other and like 
like, and then there were 12 year old girls or even younger. And the head technical director was like, okay, we're working on side volleys from across today to finish. I was like, what? <laughs> I'm, I'm meant to teach an 11 year old how to perfect a side volley. Like, I don't even, I'm not sure that I can do that. <laughs> and so, so they're a, a very good club. Um, and yeah, and I, I saw this no matter where I was in the country coaching was that I'm learning all this stuff in PT school. And then subsequently after I graduated about FIFA 11 plus and injury risk reduction strategies and how important a good strength and conditioning program is. And we know all of this in academics, um, but it, it often um, kind of gets lost in translation or doesn't it ever make it to the end user which is the athlete and the coaches. Mm -hmm. And so I was seeing that across the board, wherever I was coaching was that it just wasn't getting implemented. And so uh, I started my social media as a way to translate that research for coaches, players, and parents. What I didn't expect was what happened was that a lot of then physios and SNC coaches started following me and athletic trainers. Um, started following me to kind of get that information. And it makes sense now in retrospect because not everyone enjoys or or necessarily has the time to read the research. And it that's something that I genuinely do enjoy doing. Um, I love like going to conferences and, and continuing my learning and reading the actual research and getting stuck in on some of the data. Um, and then seeing how I can apply that on the field or in the gym with my athletes. And so I guess just kind of trying to translate that information for people and showing how clinically applicable it can be. I, I think that that just helped. I initially like very purposely only posted about like objective things, um, just like here's what the research says and here's how you can apply it. And I think that that was helpful for my growth early on. Now I, um, I show a little bit more of like my personality and, and my interpretation of things um, and how I do things that maybe isn't always exactly like what the research says, um, but I still tend to be more of a research-driven uh, practitioner. But yeah, so I, I guess just um, that, having a genuine interest in educating and, and sharing information and knowledge is what helped me. I wasn't, I wasn't in it to start a business hmm. um, that just kind of happened over time. Um, so I, I think maybe sometimes people go into it with the expectation that, Oh, I'm going to get a hundred thousand followers and start a cash-based practice and sell a course and write a book. And like, I, I think that that expectation is a little too high most of the time. Um, but if you go into it from a, place, a genuine place of, I just want to share what I know, I think that that's helped. That, that's helped to me anyway. And then once you can scale it and once it grows, then you can think about trying to monetize and build a business off that. But I, I don't think that should come first. I think that's a great point because I think there are people out there that, that are genuine and trying to get the right information out there. But then the flip of that, I completely agree. I think there's people that are going in it from day one thinking, I'll set this page out. I'll put a few uh, posts out. Loads of people will follow me. They'll love what I do. Yeah. And then they'll buy everything that I, do, that I put out. And it's yeah. not the case, is it? And yeah, I think that just sums up that there's a lot of work that goes behind what you put out as well. It's not just a case of just posting whatever it is. Like you're reading, you're constantly researching, and then you're translating it into um, a way that makes it visually um, easy to, to watch and read. So I think that there's a lot of lessons in there for people to, to take on board. Yeah. And I would also say like, make sure what you're putting out is of quality, right? So like, it's fine to be in like a, a busy place with kind of a messy background and you're just using your phone. That's fine. You're still getting information out, but I think to set yourself apart, like if you have some good like photography skills, videography skills, editing skills, and just making it more visually appealing for people. Um, you know, like I scroll through my feed and of course this is selection bias because of just who I follow. But like a lot of times, like it's like the same post after the same post, right? Like ankle sprain rehab, ACL rehab. And it's like the same exercise, the same thing over and over. So what can you do to set yourself apart? How can you get someone to stop just scrolling and stop and read what you have to say or watch what you have to show them and share. Um, so I think that that's a good thing to think about as well. 
Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. And then we'll we'll move on to the quick fire now. So some quick fire questions for you. So just to start with on the quick fire, um, who are some of the biggest influences on your career so far? Yeah, so um, kind of the people that I aspire to be more like are people like Don Scott, um, who's just an incredible role model and mentor and um, someone who I'm lucky that I'm able to kind of reach out to her if, I, if I'm if i having trouble with something or want to learn about something else. Um, so she's awesome. Uh, Dave Tenney, who you've had on before as well, um, he's just you know, all he's done in the world of like sports science and performance here in American soccer and MLS is just incredible. And so I really look up to him as well. Um, probably the, there's two people who've had the biggest impact on my career. Um, first, obviously my husband, um, because he's also a physical therapist. And so uh, just being able to bounce ideas off of each other and challenging each other's um, beliefs and, and um, biases has been really helpful. And then the other person is Amy Arendale. Um, so she's a physical therapist and also has her PhD in biomechanics. Um, she's put out a ton of research and uh, we have kind of a similar mindset and similar um long-term career aspirations and so she's just she's a great friend and mentor to kind of again bounce ideas off of get advice from and kind of follow her lead on a lot of things so that would be um the main people that I that I've been influenced by and then of course just like the larger international like football medicine community and I think mm -hmm. something like the isokinetic conference has been huge for my professional and personal growth like being able to go to the conference and have a conversation with people like Marcus Walden and Christian Thorborg. And it's like, these are giants in the field and to, to be able to ask them questions one-on-one -on -one and hear what they have to say. I, I think that that's a huge benefit um, of like the more international community. Brilliant. And then next one, what would you say your biggest strength is as a coach? Um, I, I would I would like to think that because I've been a player, I've been a, a sport coach and SNC coach and a physio, um, that kind of being able to understand everyone's perspective and bring everyone to the table and, and chasing after the same mission and the same goals. Um, I'd like to think that I give my athletes enough education, empowerment and autonomy um, that they enjoy our sessions and and they find value in what I provide. So I would say that probably probably those kind of soft skills are probably more of my strengths. Um, and then just the fact that I am so like super into soccer. Like I I don't think um, I know many people who are as like hardcore just into it as much as I am. And so <laughs> having just like that that real genuine willingness and desire to help improve the game especially the women's game which I think has just been um, forced to become professionalized in a very short time when you compare it to how long the men's game has had to grow and become more professionalized and so uh, yeah I think just how keen I am on it and how eager and keen I am to learn more and contribute more I, I think that that's probably one of my biggest strengths. I think it's another great point to, to really get um, really involved in in the sport or whatever you're working in is really important, isn't it? Because you're going to be learning all the time then. Yeah, exactly. And like, just, I don't know, like being part of it, it's a culture, right? Like football has its own culture. And, mm -hmm. and I think understanding that, I don't think it's a necessary thing for coaches. Um, I certainly don't think it's, it's a necessity, but um, yeah, I just think it's something that keeps me passionate about it and keeps it fun for me and uh hopefully knock on wood like provides good career longevity as well yeah awesome and then next one um this i keep saying this is relevant for this year but uh the best <laughs> bit or some of the some of the best bits of cpd that you've done this year so whether that's webinars podcasts um whatever it is that you you think has, has stood out for you 
Yeah, so I guess pretty early on in lockdown, um, the player maker series that they did, especially the She Wins webinar, um, I was fortunate enough to present in that. And when I when I looked at the list, I didn't know who else was presenting in this until like a day or two before. And I looked at the list and I saw like Don Scott, Georgie Bruinveld, Anson Durance, and I was like, oh, how <laughs> how am I on this list? <laughs> Um, but I thought that was a really well put together webinar. Um, and then Dan Howells has, has um, this Collaborate Sports where he's been doing pretty regularly, like a couple times a month, um, different interactive events. And so um, they're very inexpensive or free. And so being able to interact with providers and coaches from around the world um, and just learning some of the insights of working in pro sport and some of the hardships and also some of the benefits of it and hearing it from the sources, I think has been really instrumental and really nice. And then I'm a huge podcast consumer. So of course I've been listening to this one for a long time now. Um, you have and to say that. Like the, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. <laughs> this one. And then like, yeah, like the Pacey performance podcast. And then I like to listen to kind of outside, outside of our profession, outside the industry podcast. Mm -hmm. There's one called on the edge, which I think is great. Uh, you are not so smart. Um, hidden brain podcast, uh, science versus, and just things that get you to think a little bit differently. And then, yeah, I, I really like to read as well. I know that's one of those things that like, it's like, oh, you just like to post on social media how many books you've read this year. But like, I genuinely love reading. And so um, I always have like, as a child, I always did as well. So yeah, I guess just reading um, and yeah. <laughs> See, I, I always wished that I, I, if probably if I tried harder, I'd be able to do it. But reading has been one of those things that I've always really struggled with. So I'm I'm very much a visual, visual learner. Or, or I like I love listening. I could listen to podcasts all day. And I'm the same as you. I could listen to not just sport, not just S and C, not just football, but I can listen to all sorts of different things. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, but I do wish that I could sit and take in book after book. But I've, I'm just not one of those people that can do that. <laughs> yeah, every, well, everyone like takes in information differently. I'm such like a word person, like such yeah. a like a written word or spoken word person. So like, yeah, books are just like a great like it's a great way for me to learn. Yeah, no, definitely. And then the last couple of questions, similar for two different uh, types of people. So, what do you think one of the most important traits is um, to have as a coach? Yeah, I think. Um, having a level of flexibility and adaptability is really important. Um, again, we talked about before, you can have the best laid plan. So as a coach, you can have the best system in mind. But then if you look at the, the team of individuals in front of you, if that's not what's best suited to them, um, it may not be effective. You know, maybe you can bring them up to the level or, or change their, their style a bit and change how you train them so that they do fit your system. Um, but I think just being able to recognize the individuality of each person and, and being able to be flexible with your approach with each of those individuals that you're working with um, is really important. Setting ego aside, recognizing that you may not always know everything and it's good to hear other people's opinions and um, their perspectives and updating your, your beliefs and your systems as needed. Yeah, brilliant. And then just to flip that, what would you say is the most important trait for a, a player or maybe an athlete? Yeah, I would say probably the same thing, you know, being able to have that willingness to be open and continue to learn. Um, I, I think that with anything, with our careers, with whether you're a coach, whether you're an athlete, whether you're a banker, a politician, what a nurse, like the, the willingness to continue to learn. Um, I think is huge in, in career growth and in reaching the top of your, your chosen field of your industry. And so just being open to learning and, and taking in what you can from different resources. So you may think as a player that your biggest strength is, um, you know, beating people down the flank and sending a cross in, or, or you're a player who's always in the right spot in front of goal and you're a natural goal scorer. But maybe, and we saw this like with Alex Morgan in the World Cup last year, 
maybe what the team needs from you and maybe what the coach is asking of you is different than what you feel like your strengths are, but being open to that. And it'll just add another level to your game, right? Like Alex Morgan is typically someone who is great beating a defender, taking her space and then getting a nice shot on goal or, or getting an assist. But in the world cup, she was asked to play more of like a true number nine back to goal. And she got beat up in some of the games and maybe didn't score as many goals as was expected. Um, but it really added another level to her game and it added another layer that she, another tool in her arsenal that she now has as a player. And so I would say to any, any athlete, you know, take that as your example that you can always add new things to your game. Um, you're not always gonna, you shouldn't just pigeonhole yourself into, well, this is my strength. This is what I need to do to be successful. Brilliant. Some amazing information in there, Nicole. So thank you very much for coming on again. <laughs> and <laughs> we nailed it. <laughs> thank you to the Wi-Fi as well for yes. being so smooth. Um, but Nicole, do you want to have talked there about the information you put out um, and how good it is? So for people to go and give you a follow and keep up to date with what you've got going on, do you want to just direct them where the best places are to go? Yes, yeah, so um, you can follow me on Instagram, and that's at Dr. Nicole PT, or on Twitter, which is at NCertica Physio. And then my website is NicoleCerticaPhysio.com. And on my website, you can find my blog. I write about a lot of different things, not just rehab and performance training, um, and also my courses. So I have two courses that I teach. One is an ethical return to sport decision-making course, um, and that if you're U.S. based, if you're a physical therapist or athletic trainer in the U.S., that counts for continuing education units um, and in states that require an ethics course, it fulfills your ethics requirements. So I think that's really nice. And then the other one is managing the uninjured soccer player. And I've been doing virtual um, courses for that, obviously, because I can't travel and go teach it right now. Um, so just you can be on my website or follow me on social media and see when the next virtual course is going to be. Yeah. I was going to ask about that. So the courses are usually in-person courses, but you've had to shift it for now. Yeah. The ethics course has been online. Um, so that's, that's online format and that's fine. Um, but yeah, the managing the uninjured soccer player, that was, I was traveling around teaching it in person, like a weekend course. Um, but yeah, I can't do that. So pivoting a bit, but that's okay <laughs> it's got to be done this year it's got to be done though it's great to hear and, and guys go and check it out because i know i know the information will be great so um yeah go and go and check it out but nicole thank you very much for giving up your time i really appreciate you coming on the podcast and it was great to speak to you thanks so much for having me on like i said i've been listening for a long time and it's really an honor to be asked to be on it now brilliant well take care we'll stay in touch thanks ben Big thank you to Nicole for coming on the podcast. And again, huge congratulations from me in landing her new role as Director of Rehabilitation. Loads of takeaways again. I feel like I say this on every episode, but I honestly believe it. I, I, I end up not being able to write everything down as I'm speaking to the person, so I have to listen back to it. But in terms of takeaways, um, Nicole used a great phrase, educating and empower, educating and empowering players was one of her key philosophies uh, training philosophies and I think that's really important it has crossed over to a number of different episodes that we've had and and a number of different practitioners that we spoke to it's not just leading a good program but it's also educating players and empowering those players as well to go forward because she mentioned that they could be traded onto different clubs or just generally just moving through their career they do need to know um, the reasons why they're doing things and the things that work for them as well she also talked about the psychological readiness to return. So we spoke about the end stage rehab and that being a critical time, not only being physically ready, but also psychologically ready as well. And it actually crosses over really nicely to the webinar that Laura Bowen did for us because she touched on this stage as well. The players do need to be psychologically ready to return um, and be confident, not just uh, physically ready. And that's what Nicole spoke about in, in terms of a lot of practitioners that she'd worked with or possibly alongside will say that the player is ready and that they'll be referring to physical markers. But 
are they ready in the head? Are they, are they mentally ready and psychologically ready to return to the pitch? She also went into depth on the five-stage rehab process, which I thought was really interesting. And then she talked about starting with the end in mind as well. So starting with the, the sort of final, the final target, the final aim of a rehab process, and then working back step by step, not talking about things that are too far in the future because it's not that relevant to the player there and then, but giving small stepping stones to go through that process and that makes it a little bit more uh, current for the players and a bit more understandable as you, as you cut it down into sort of bite-sized chunks. So amazing, a great podcast, I think, with Nicole. Some unbelievable information in this one. Um, you can go and follow Nicole on Twitter. So go to at nserdika. So that's a surname, which is S-U-R-D-Y-K-A, and then physio. So go and give Nicole a, a follow if you're not following her already. She also mentioned her courses, so you can go and check those out. And the website is nicolesurdicaphysio.com. So go and check out that website as well. As always, massive thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate all your listens, all your shares and all your comments. So please keep those going. Reach out with any potential guests that you can think of um, because we've had some great recommendations recently. And again, Huge congratulations to Nicole for landing a new role, but also to all the other practitioners that we've seen recently land new roles. And we've had a number on the podcast, including uh, people like Dave Tenney recently as well. So massive congratulations to everyone that's going into a new role. And um, yeah, a massive thank you again for everyone for listening. And we'll speak to you again in episode 112 next week.